Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, the place to get to meet the people of Austin and find out how they became the people of Austin. I'm your host, Bob Morse, and sitting somewhere in parts unknown is my co-host, Joel McCall, <laughs> probably contemplating kind of whether... Where's Waldo? Yeah. Probably kind contem- of where's Waldo of the uh, podcast world? Yeah. Probably contemplating whether he wants to turn on the TV tomorrow. <laughs> Well, tomorrow's okay. Saturday's going to be a question. Oh, yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> I keep thinking it's Friday. My week's eh. – anyway. So um, this week, you know, we have a, a guest with us, which I thought looking into his background, um, we kind of ran across him through Christian who had the reopen doc. And mm-hmm. I found this kind of – you know, his story interesting, and he definitely has a take on things and, and maybe how – things could improve under this pandemic or how people could shift their models and stuff like that. So I would like to bring to you Eric Silverstein. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, not a problem. So I want to give the audience a little bit about your background because you may come from further than anyone we've had on this podcast before <laughs> to Austin, you know, how your trail to Austin. So can you give yeah. me a little bit of that background? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, my my way way back background is I was born overseas and um, you know spent the first eleven to twelve years of my life living in in um, Japan. And I'm not, you know, I'm not Japanese, but my dad had a job over there, and and so that's where I was raised and brought up. And then we moved to the United States when I was about uh, twelve. My dad actually had a job with Pizza Hut. Um, in, in the Southeastern Division. And so then I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And then from there, I moved to St. Louis, Missouri and, and lived there for 10 years. Um, ended up practicing law, going to law school, practicing law, and then decided to really make a U-turn in my career. And I went into the food truck business and, and came down to Austin. And I was 20, you know, that was a long time ago. That was, tw- I was 27. Um, you know, I'm 38 now and life changed a lot, obviously. And, um, uh, but I just felt like at that point in my life, the, the time was right to, to kind of pursue some passions as opposed to, uh, just trying to clock, clock and clock in and clock out kind of thing. So yeah, decided to, to get into the food truck business, which in hindsight was a little bit radical and, um, it was a much, much more challenging, um, job, much more challenging business to run than I did anticipated. So you said your father was with Pizza Hut. Did did you have a close relationship with food growing up? I did, you know, and it's interesting because it came from all different angles. You know, I had a relationship with food from what my mother cooked. My mother's Chinese. My father's white. You know, I'm biracial. And so I grew up eating a lot of Asian food growing up in, in Japan. I ate a lot of Japanese food. But my dad, being in the fast food business, food business i grew up eating a decent amount of pizza hut you know um uh, i'm not gonna lie and i I do like my pizza hut um you know (laughs) we used to as a kid growing up we used to go to atlanta falcon football games in the georgia dome and i remember getting a pizza pizza personal pizza every time that you could never get that these days in 2020 but that's what i grew up on um my dad ended up actually going to work for Outback Steakhouse after that, and I ate a whole lot of Outback Steakhouse, too, um, when I was in high school. So, um, you know, I'm not one of those people that 
tipped my uh, nose at, um, at chain restaurants or, uh, you know, I'm pretty open, but, um, but I, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of different types of food in the past 38 years. Absolutely. So what made you want to make the leap from law to uh, food truck? So, you know, as a I went to law school to actually be a sports agent. Um, and so I wanted to rep athletes and, um, I ended up working for a bunch of sports agents and sports, uh, uh, promoters, um, before I went to law school. Um, I actually had worked for a big sports agency out of Chicago called, uh, CSMG and they got, they have been since acquired by Octagon Sports. Um, I worked for a boxing promoter in Las Vegas, Nevada. He used to, uh, represent Riddick Bowe. He was Riddick Bowe's manager. And then. Wow. Uh, represented uh, Mike Tyson in his last fight in DC. I was at I was at Mike Tyson's last fight actually, hmm. um, and uh, I ended you think up. You could take him? <laughs> no, nah, he's fighting again now, and he yeah. he looks pretty mean. So I don't I don't think I would want to get. He was a big guy in person. I met Mike Tyson at, at a fight. He was a big yeah. dude, but um, but uh, you know. I ended up working for a long story short. I worked for a, a firm in St. Louis, Missouri, that uh, represented some some football players and some college basketball coaches, um, and that's what got me in with the firm. And uh, at the same time, the recession hit back in '07, and the, everything kind of changed. You know, um, you know, you were just lucky to have a job, and you know, you were just trying to fill whatever hours you could at the firm and hope you weren't going to get fired. Um, or laid off, not fired. And so uh, it got me thinking a lot and I ended up doing a lot of work that I just honestly wasn't all that passionate about. Um, I was grateful to have a job. I just wasn't passionate about it. And so I really wanted to pursue my passion in owning a business and, and trying to do something in food. And originally I was going to try to raise money for a restaurant and I was trying to raise about 400000 to $500,000. And, um, I got, I put together a business plan and I circulated it and I got out of a hundred asks for investments, I probably got about 98 rejections. And I quickly realized that for me to be able to pursue this, it was going to have to be in a much uh, lower uh, starting capital business. And that was food truck, you know, and it was, it was either start the business in a food truck or don't start it at all. And so I chose, I chose to start in a food truck. Right. And I, I think well, how did you research food trucks? I mean, this, and, and so this is 2010, maybe? It's 2009. Yeah. Okay. So food trucks had to be a fairly new phenomenon, right? Uh, they were. They had, they had started to creep up around 2008. I mean, the food truck, the food truck model is nothing new. You know, these lunch right. trucks have been around forever, but the, the new age food trucks, you know, like, repurposing food trucks to serve it to a different demographic with a different type of food. That was a new idea. And so I watched a lot of YouTube um, and talked to uh, some people in the industry, but there really wasn't a lot of information on the industry. You know, you could scour the internet for days and there was very little you could find on what kind of sales are food trucks doing and what are the costs and what does the P&L look like for a food truck and, how do you make money in a food truck? And, and even if you were to talk to some operators, they weren't really giving you the information you needed to feel good about running a food truck. So, um, you know, I've, I've since made it a point. Anyone who wants to talk about food trucks, I mean, I'm happy to tell them 
Uh, but it's a tough business. It's a really hard one to run. I think I read somewhere too that came down to you had a choice between a few cities that you were thinking about opening yeah. this truck truck in, and so what made you choose Austin? You know, my my girlfriend at the time is now my wife and mother of my two kids. Um, she chose Austin. Um, I gave her the option we could go to Seattle, we could go to Denver. I figured out how to make the model work, how to get my hands on trucks at other location. And she said, well, let's go to Austin. And so, you know, we made it work. I mean, we, we had read a lot of positive things about Austin. We had uh, visited it. You know, the economy had been able to withstand uh, a pretty fierce recession in 08. Um, housing prices held. So we felt good about, you know, the economics of, of moving to Austin. Well, it sounds like, I mean, just listening to what you're saying, you – You'd really done some deep research on this before you jumped into this, but when you first opened the truck, what were your challenges? I mean, I think the better question is what were my challenges because that was <laughs> a much smaller list. But um, I think what I realized early on was the food truck model in, in, in general was just a very tough one. You know, um, it's, you're basically scraping by. Um, the There was no clear-cut model like do we need a commissary kitchen to run prep or do we are we supposed to run prep out of the food trucks because the city of austin seems to think one license will suffice but it sure as hell doesn't make sense to me that we could prep out of this food truck in addition to running shifts like i think we need a separate kitchen you know these are questions that we just kind of had to figure out um but beyond the actual business things um you know i was an attorney before this and i was the employee, not the employer. Um, I was the one who was told what to do and given feedback. Um, so putting myself into a leadership position where I had to employ people and run payroll and learn all the millions of rules that comes with running a business, um, that's just stuff I just didn't know, um, quite honestly, and it's stuff I had to figure out. Um, and it probably it took me years to uh become a semi-effective manager, um, and, and it's still something I'm working on today. So I would say I probably didn't really have the people skills at the time to have employees, um, and uh, the food truck model was so raw that I, I, it took me a lot of, a long time to really understand what the hell to do with it. Cool. So, so when you were shopping for your first food truck, uh what was it like? Did you kick the tires? Did you, uh, how do you find a food truck? Well, for us, uh, the first food trucks we leased and there was a, a commissary in Austin in, in Pflugerville and, um, a guy by the name of Tom Ramsey owned, uh, a, a commissary outfit called, uh, Snappy Snacks Mobile Catering. And he had about 40, uh, Launchera trucks, which are food trucks, and so we leased one. Um, and we leased one because I just didn't know what the hell I was doing, and I didn't know how to build one. Uh, the cost of building a, a food truck can be, I mean, easy sixty, seventy thousand dollars. And so uh, we wanted to test the model first before we made that investment. So we did eventually buy, and we custom built two trucks about seven, seven and a half years ago. But um, ten years ago, when we started, we leased them. So when you're first getting into this, I've got a question just for my own curiosity. 
How do you know how to configure it with everything you'll need? Well, these trucks come configured, right? They, they already have the equipment in it. So you build the menu. Instead of building the, the truck around your menu, you're building a menu around the truck, okay. right? And yeah, so that makes sense then. A lot of chefs, when they build a restaurant, they they have a menu in mind and then they put in the equipment. But this right. is this is reverse engineering it. You're building the menu based on what you have. Um, so you don't, you don't, you don't have a choice. Yeah. That's why <laughs> I was thinking that it's like, if you know what you want to make, how do you get the equipment in there to make it? But I guess I understand no. what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, Joel. What do you got? No, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it's like. And what, you have three people in this truck? I mean, you ever, it seems like a big roller derby scrum. How do you how do you choreograph this? It's tied in there, you know. Um, it, it's not for everyone. I'll say that, and especially in the Austin heat, you know, we didn't have AC in these trucks, um, so it gets really hot, and uh, everyone gets really sticky, and uh, probably not the best uh, during a pandemic, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you can fit about four people in there, though. Like, I wouldn't say comfortably, but you can fit four people in there. I guess they'd have to be friends, right? Friends, yeah. <laughs> but they, or they become a quick enemy. So, um, was it about 2014 you opened your first uh, brick and mortar? That's right, 2014, yeah. Okay, so what was the move like to that, moving to that situation from the truck? It was... Uh, a little nerve wracking, but at the same time exhilarating. Um, I remember that very well because, um, you know, I was very nervous about trying to build a restaurant. I never built a restaurant before. I never got an architect. I really had to lean on my architect. Um, I didn't know how to lay out a kitchen properly in terms of, you know, how big of a line do we need and where do we put prep and where's the dish pit and all these little things. Um, so it was a real big learning experience, but at the same time, when you spend four years running a business out of other people's, on other people's terms, out of their commissary kitchens and their parking lots, mm-hmm. um, it was just time, you know. Um, four years in retrospect probably wasn't that long, but it felt like a lifetime, you know. It yeah. felt like a lifetime to be in a food truck. Uh, and originally when I wrote my business plan, I said one year, and uh, it was four. You know, and, and so it became this war of attrition to try and get to a restaurant. And it felt like we were, we needed it as a team. We needed that validation. Um, and, you know, we didn't just, we didn't open the restaurant as a fast casual restaurant. We, we opened it as a full service restaurant with a full bar. And mm-hmm. that type of operation requires a lot more insight into service and how to get food out on time and tickets and timing tickets and table touches and all those things that you don't do in a food truck. In a food truck, you take an order and you call someone's name out and you hand them their food. It's the most elementary operation there is. So sure. um, full-service restaurants, full different game. Yeah, that I mean, but it, I would assume that it allows you a lot more flexibility with what you can do, you know, like, I know you guys don't you have some whiskey and um yeah pairings and stuff like that that you you know some of the tasting things that you want to do and some of the different flavors you want to add and and specialty things such as absolutely that. absolutely yeah you you can it's a game changer you know I mean we were doing 
you know, 600,000 bucks a shift in a, in a food truck. And now you can do, you know, five, 6,000 a night on a busy night, you know? Uh, like I said, the, you, you don't get into the food truck business to make money. You, you get into the food truck business to provide some sort of foundation to, or platform to build off of the future, but you got to have an end game in mind. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why we did it to get into the restaurant. Yeah, and so since then you've been able to open a couple of other places. I know. Um, the, uh, that's right. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah, we have um, Bar Peach downtown. We have the Peach Tortilla, a fast casual outpost in the airport, which has unfortunately been closed since the start of the pandemic. And then uh, I, I'm sitting inside of my office space, which is inside of my venue and event events division, which is Peach Social House, which is on on Lamar. No, yeah, that's amazing. So I mean, if you look back at what you've done over the last ten years, that's pretty big deal yeah i mean it's it's been good you know unfortunately um you, you know you're catching me in the middle of a pandemic and, right. and business is unfortunately not the same and um we you know we've, we've had to take some steps backwards um taking significant steps backwards um in the past six months so uh if you had caught me on an interview right before covid i would say it's amazing uh now i'm just I'm not shell shocked so much as just trying to figure out how to navigate this thing. Well, let's talk about expand on that a little bit because you had to pivot pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing right now? Uh, I, I guess we're open to seventy five percent occupancy now, and mm-hmm. and uh, how how are you faring? I think we're faring about as well as we can. Um, the restaurants are doing pretty well. Uh, um, you know, so I'm pretty confident in saying they're going to survive. It's just, uh, the, the biggest casualties are obviously my airport unit, which is, you know, there, because airport traffic is down, you know, 80%. Um, and then, uh, my events division has taken a huge hit because we can't cater large events. Um, it's come back a little bit in September, a little bit more in October, a little bit in November, but, the year is pretty much shot, um, and we've seen about a 75 to 80 percent decrease in our total sales for that division for 2020. Um, so, I mean, I guess the answer to your question would be we're still surviving, and um, but uh, I, I would not want to do this for much longer. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll, you, we'll, we'll carry on, but um, things have got to change. Yeah. So, did you ramp up takeout and and to go orders, or how did you uh, shift? Did you shift emphasis to that? Well, I'll, I'll give you the full rundown. So, the Friday before um, the shutdown happened, I believe that was about the tenth of March. Um, we started to notice a decrease in inline dining. Uh, you know, that, that Wednesday, there was the first case of coronavirus in Austin. And then I think that Friday, somebody at UT, like the chancellor's wife, got it. And um, that Friday, we started noticing a decrease in reservations and sales. Saturday was a steeper decrease. Sunday, it was like 70% decrease. And we knew something was on the horizon. So when I came in on Monday, I said, we're shutting it down because the writing's on the wall. And at that point, all our events for catering were wiped off the books. We lost, uh, you know, $150,000 South by Click Catering client. Um, everything was kind of falling apart. 
And so we, that week, all we did was do takeout out of one of our restaurants. Uh, we closed Bar Peach. It didn't reopen until June. Um, we closed the dining room and all we did was takeout at Peach Tortilla. And uh, the events division shuttered and we basically were trying to do family meals um, at a different location. And so we went from driving, you know, $150,000 a week in revenue uh, and what was supposed to be a peak week, you know, 200, I mean, maybe as high as 200,000 in revenue to driving 14,000 or 15,000. Um, and trying to figure out what the hell to do, you know? Um, and we never stopped. We never took any time off. We always kept going and we gradually figured things out. We gradually reopened Bar Peace first with takeout, then with outdoor patio seating, then limited dining seating. We reopened limited dining seating at at Peach Tortilla. But it's, it's just, it cannot be what it was. It's just, it's, it's a physical impossibility for us to um, to distance tables and get anywhere near 75% uh, occupancy. For me, the 75% is, is a PR stunt because it doesn't matter if you want to uh, keep people distant or you put up partitions and you spend a ton of money partitioning tables, you know, where you have a piece of plexiglass. Which, quite honestly, I don't love. Uh, I don't love that look, you know. Um, and uh, it's expensive. So, and, and you're still. And if you do that, and you pack your restaurant with 75% people, then you may get some blowback from your staff, who may say they don't feel that comfortable with that. So, you're, you're walking a fine line, where whichever way you go in this thing. What has been the feedback from your staff of starting to reopen the dining rooms and stuff? Well, I don't think anyone is 100%. Well, I take that back. Not everyone is 100% comfortable with reopening dining. You know, they're just not. Everyone is at a different place on this thing, and we have to respect that as a company. Um, you know, some people are perfectly fine with it. Some people are comfortable talking to people with no masks. Some people are incredibly uncomfortable talking to people with no masks. Um, I just don't think there's a universal uh, marker where everyone stands and, you know, that's how they feel about coronavirus. Um, at the same time, we have landlords, and you guys have watched the reopen doc. We have landlords who are demanding full rent right. and they're demanding to get paid. Um, and one of our landlords has been incredibly flexible. Uh, one has been mildly flexible. One has been not flexible hardly at all. So, you know, if we're going to pay rent, full rent, we got to use some of that space or this business model doesn't work, you know. Um, And also uh, for a restaurant like Peach Tortilla on Burnett Road where we only had indoor dining, uh, what what other option do we have? Now, we spent spent $7,000 building a patio Mm -hmm. for that location. But um, prior to that, what choice do we have? You know, it's either continue to do takeout and cut everyone's pay or open for dining and try to keep everyone's pay within uh, with close to what it was pre coronavirus. Right. So have you had to lay anybody off? Uh, we've had to furlough quite a bit of people. Yes. Okay. Um, 
And unfortunately, a lot of those people have not come back um, because it's just been too long. And some have gotten out of the industry, some have found other jobs. Um, but yeah, I mean, my catering division, uh, between all my entities, I think we employed about 140 people. <clears throat> and um, I think we're probably sitting around 70 right now. So half. Wow. So half. That hurts. Um, so I know like in L.A., I, I'd heard some of the stuff on this where they were actually like taking over the sidewalks, the restaurants, and actually, you know, setting up tables out there, putting up barriers yeah. to keep the yeah. public out, you know, and stuff like that. Has the city offered you guys any kind of, you know, guidance, help? Here's what we can help you with. Okay, the city, you know, first I, I, I would want to say that um, Austin is, is very different in terms of its, <clears throat> you know, landscape and sure. city, uh, cityscape and, and how it's built compared to New York City, right? So um, even if I wanted to take over Burnett Road, I don't think they would let me because Burnett Road's got sure. four lanes and it's crazy busy. So, <clears throat> you know, I think the city has like a, I think has been somewhat flexible, you know, but, you know, there's some red tape to, to certainly go through. Um, I can't say it's necessarily flexible enough given, like, look, look, to be honest, like, this is how I feel about this. Um, on April or March 14th, we were told we can't open our dining room. There was no red tape. There was nothing, there was nothing involved. There was just a statement. You can't open your dining room. <clears throat> so... If the city can do that to a restaurant or the governor or whoever, then I would pose the question, shouldn't a restaurant just be able to put some seats outside and serve some people if it needs to? Sure. That doesn't, to me, seem like an unreasonable request. Not at all. um, The fact that that requires some hoops to jump through is a little disappointing. No, I agree. I've seen uh, some of the brewery owners here that, you know, just have a bunch of picnic tables outside, and they're saying, yeah. well, why can't we seat people here? And it's, well, you're yeah. a bar you can't open. And it's like, well, yeah. that seems contradictory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is, <clears throat> my biggest issue with, my biggest issue with this whole pandemic is, um, well, I have, I have two issues. One is, I have no issue restricting um, capacity in my restaurant. If that is what the leading scientists in the United States think is the best thing for us to get through this pandemic, I have no issue with that. But there needs to be an intermediary, which takes the pressure off landlords to come after tenants like ourselves and demand full rent. Because it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, well, how can we be restricted? We can't serve anyone. You, you demand us to pay full rent. Like, clearly that's not fair. Clearly that doesn't make any sense. But the government is approaching this with a very hands-off appro- approach. To me, that's my number, one of my bigger problems. And the second thing I'd have to say is I think our approach from a policy standpoint, just it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I think, you know, businesses got... Businesses got a lot of money in PPP loans. The government was very generous with PPP loans, you know, and 
the way that the renewed laws have been written with PPP, a lot of those loans are going to be fully forgiven, right? Sure. So businesses got a pretty big break with that. The PPP loan was, was a, a positive thing for businesses. Initially, it wasn't. Initially, the way it was written, and when I talked about it in the reopen doc, it was before they revised the legislation. It was initially saying, hey, you've got eight weeks to spend this money, and you've got to use it all on rent and uh, and your and, and payroll. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, by the way, you can't even open your dining room. So what the hell are you going to use the money for, right? So initially, it was very flawed. They fixed it. But I still think and I still stand mm-hmm. by that the better approach would have been to just shut it all down for a month, use that money, <clears throat> use that same PP money that you gave to businesses anyways, and said, you know what? Each business gets X amount of dollars. Use this to cover your payroll and cover your rent and just close. Just close for a month. Let's knock this thing out, get the numbers real low, and then let's just reopen with the numbers low and we'll take these uh, precautions that we need to. And we, I, I just feel like we'd be in a lot better place than we are right now. But unfortunately, the government spent the trillions of dollars, but it just hasn't worked the way I think it should have, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. Well, it does. Yeah. Look what Italy did. Yeah. Italy shut the country down. Yeah. You know, and there was a big hue and cry from everyone saying, well, you know, they're not making any money, but they uh, reopened with a much lower sure. infection rate. Sure. Uh, it was just the whole concept of stopping the economy. But see, my, 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 I guess my point is, and I don't think a lot of the public knows this, <clears throat> but businesses got money. Money was distributed. A lot of money was distributed. A lot of money. That's all going to get forgiven. And so if, if that money had just been distributed in a slightly different way to incentivize businesses to just shut it down for a month early on, I think we'd be in a much better place. But instead, the money was spent and, you know, the virus yeah. wasn't corralled and businesses are still struggling because because the virus isn't corralled. Businesses are kind of not making the money they did before. And then it's just it's just business vicious cycle. And now it's too late. So anyway, well, I think you make a really good point. Yeah. Well, yeah. and so I had a question. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question. But, you know, the city just recently um, extended the the rental, you know, the um no eviction stuff to the end of the year. Did they ever come back to your landlords and say, look, they can't earn a hundred percent. Can you help them out? You know, we as the city are asking you to do this. Can you do this? You know, yeah. I mean, there was a no eviction period. Um, I don't know if it's still standing or not, honestly, but it didn't protect the tenant from after that period. Right. Right. Absolutely. um, You know, there was a lot of legal gray area in there. You know, I mean, who's to say that a landlord couldn't come back and sue you after the day after that eviction moratorium over and done with and say, Hey, look, these guys didn't follow the lease. They didn't pay their rent. You know, we're taking you right to court. Um, And, you know, for most commercial tenants, the risk is not worth the reward in that scenario because we all have personal guarantees tied to our leases. I, I sure as hell don't want to see a, 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 a lawsuit against me individually. Sure. I don't want to see my uh, car or my house repossessed. You know I mean? There's a lot on the line um, 
for, for, for restaurant owners. So, for, I mean, I'm sure some tenants didn't pay their rent, you know, and maybe they got evicted, you know, maybe they got, you know, locked out. Um, it just wasn't a risk we were willing to take. No, I completely understand. Um, yeah. Just on, an, on another note, so we kind of touched on that. I know you said the airport one was one of your most profitable locations um, or your most profitable location. Do you foresee being able to open that back up at some point as travel increases? Um, I, well, I, I will say for us personally, it wasn't our, it wasn't our most profitable oh, location, okay. but um, I would say probably our events division was, but um, it was a great location. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's just so much, there was so much traffic mm-hmm. uh, in the airport. Um, do I think it will reopen? Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, that you'll be able to reopen it. We're planning on reopening it <clears throat> on a very, very, very small scale at the end of this month and rebuilding slowly. I don't think it will be back to where it was until the end of 2021. Sure. I mean, that makes sense with the travel scenarios we're hearing and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, uh, I think 2021 is a complete rebuild for this country. And, um, I think that there's a lot of things involved in this whole deal. Um, but I, I ultimately it comes down to what level of risk are, is everyone comfortable with? Um, and we've certainly adapted to that, to certain risks in, in our everyday lives, like driving cars or <laughs> smoking cigarettes or whatever it is, you know, all these things kill people. Um, it, it, it's just got to come to a point where we're okay with coronavirus being out there. And, and then I think when that happens, we'll be, we'll be climbing our way back. But, and I, and I do think a vaccine will help. I'm not a scientist, but I do think that, that being, that being out there will help a lot. Sure. I mean, there's, I don't see any way it couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so also, I, I think I read somewhere that you had another little venture you did, maybe a book. Yeah. Um, I wrote my first, uh, cookbook and it came out in May of 2019. Um, I have a great publisher out in New York that published the book for me. And, um, yeah, it's done pretty well. Uh, you know, I think sales might have been impacted a little bit with the pandemic, but, um, you know, it was in all Barnes and Noble's bookstores on Amazon.com and, and it's a, you know, hundred of our most popular recipes with some memoir in there about, you know, my upbringing. Right. Okay. So yeah, I would think during the pandemic, maybe your sales went up. People are looking for new things to cook. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, we were selling a lot on our website early on, you know, we've, we've done well with the book. I think we've sold about 6,000 copies so far. So it's done well. Excellent. So yeah. whose recipes? What's that? Whose recipes are you? Are you the uh, brains behind the recipes, or uh... a lot of them are mine, and then some of them are a collaboration with um, chefs that have worked with the company. So I wouldn't say they're definitely not all mine. Um, you know, a few of them are from different uh, chefs that have that I've worked with, had the privilege of working with in our kitchen. So I'd say it's a it's a ultimately a collaboration between a lot of us. So do you have culinary training? I have no culinary training. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think about doing a YouTube channel, you know, on, on some of those? Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wish I had time for that. You know, it's, it's been pretty busy. Even during the pandemic, you know, my schedule has been pretty crazy, um, especially with two young kids and quarantine and um, trying to get those kids back in school, um, which, you know, 
one is semi back in school and a learning pod, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm working harder and just as hard during a pandemic as I did, you know, before. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I, I can believe that. Yeah. So, so who sh- does the cooking at home? Oh, yeah, there's a good one. We share responsibilities, but I would say my wife probably a little bit more only because when I cook at work, I just I just don't feel like cooking at home again. No, I mean, I cook at work probably, you know, I don't know, two days a week, you know. Um, and so if I'm usually tired. And so, you know, I know I know I'm I'm not uh, I'm not old, old, um, but uh, you start to feel a lot different in the kitchen um, in your late 30s as opposed to your late 20s. I used to be out in the food trucks till five in the morning. I would come home at 5.30 in the morning, and I would be tired, but um, I'd be able to do it again the next day. But um, these days, I, especially with kids, I, I I don't have the energy to cook after a day of cooking at the restaurant. So sure. you feel well, there's kids. a lot of things we could do in our 20s that we yeah. can do now. <laughs> so what do you Wait. feed the kids? Mac what do we cheese? feed them? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, my kids are adventurous. My four-year-old, I mean, like the other night I made like swordfish and he wanted to eat swordfish with me and, and spinach, you know? So, I mean, we cook, we, we don't have to dumb it down for him. Uh, he'll eat, you know, Kung Pao chicken if we make Kung Pao chicken. I mean, he doesn't care. Um, so we, we feed Miko our, our, um, our four-year-old pretty much anything. Yeah. Cool. My one-year-old eats a little more basic yogurt, apples, right. uh, you know, peanut butter, that kind of stuff. So usually we um, we ask our guests a couple of questions that's kind of the theme of our podcast. You know, we, we've already asked you about how you got here and things like that. Um, but, you know, we asked some other questions that are kind of fun. So you said you visited Austin once before you moved here. What was your What was your initial impression when you got here? It was funny. My initial impression wasn't great because I got, I stayed at the Hilton downtown and I think there was like, you know, maybe there was like a football game or something in town and it was rowdy, you know, and I remember thinking, oh, wow, Austin's a real party city, you know, it was right off 6th Street. So that was my initial impression of Austin. Uh, and that, that area of town is not the nicest part of Austin by any means. No. Um, so yeah, that was my initial impression of Austin. And we stayed on the, uh, we stayed on the east side another time, and the east side was nothing like it is now. Uh, this, you know, 11 years ago, the east side was very different. So it was sketchy. Sketchy, yeah. But through yeah. that, you still, this was the city you picked, huh? Yeah, and I gotta be honest, it's, it's a great city. I mean, um, you know, I spent 10 years in Missouri before this, and, um, I, I, I really do enjoy Austin. Um, I, I, I really couldn't handle the winters in Missouri. They were just not for me. Yeah. So when you're not working and you, you guys get to go out and do stuff, where's uh, some place you really like to go hit? You like to go around town and it doesn't have to be a restaurant. It could be a park, whatever you guys like. Go hiking. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, when we go out, my wife and I, we like to, we do like to go out and eat a nice, you know, dinner, and we haven't done that. We haven't been out to eat since the start of the pandemic, not because we wouldn't, but just because we have the kids. Um, uh, I think a question, I don't know if we have a necessarily a, a spot that we go to outdoors. Um, I will say on a personal level, like my release is really is, is watching sports and, and following sports. I'm a big sports fan. 
So it's been nice to have, uh, you know, pandemic baseball and, and football and um, basketball come back so that takes my mind off things. I'm, I'm a big sports fan. For, for okay. All right. Good. College or pro? 100% pro. Yeah, I know that's like blasphemy in this town, but um, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up a, a very diehard Atlanta Falcons fan, and unfortunately I was at the Super Bowl in 1996 in Houston. So um, I'm an Atlanta fan through and through. I support the Braves and I support the Hawks. So And the Braves just won tonight, so they're going to their first NLCS in uh, 19 years. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Now I was going to put you on the spot and say what's your team, but you, you know you fessed yeah. right up. So <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Um. So next, let me ask you. Uh, in all the time you've been here, you know the ten years. Other than traffic, what's the biggest change you've seen? Well, I feel like traffic's been bad since I've been here. Um. But the biggest, I mean, there's, there's two big changes. Uh, I think we touched on it before, but the development of the East Side has been absolutely, I mean, crazy rapid. I mean, when I went to first went to Liberty Bar 10 years ago, I remember I couldn't see anything on the street because it was so dark. There was nothing out there, you know. And now the Liberty Bar is sandwiched in between these two giant apartment complexes uh, along a row of new restaurants and, and apartments. So I think the East Side has been built up i would say 10x since i've been here mm-hmm. um and then the proliferation of restaurants i mean the restaurant scene is nowhere near what it was uh in 2010 it, you know it's been amplified uh by so many new cuisines and new types of restaurants fine dining crazy build outs a lot of money has come into this town and um, it was a destination before but it's certainly been one even more now yeah, Joel and I joke about that when we both first moved here. You know, I'm pushing 30 years. He's been here over 30 years. Yeah. It was all stuff like burger stands and, and pizza joints. And, yeah. yeah. It was none of this. Yeah. It's hard to find a good steak. Yeah. We're yeah. in Texas. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it burnt, on Burnett Road, it was Austin Diner, you know, and then yeah. Austin Diner got relocated, but, yep. uh, that, it was like it was like the omelet tree, and yeah. um, and uh, Austin Diner, and you had these places that had been around for a long time, and um, you know there there was a clear changing of the guard. You know, um, do you find a lot of support between uh, amongst the restaurant community here? I mean, do you guys help do. each other out and stuff like that? Yeah, I think it's a very close knit community. Absolutely, yeah, cool. that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. so. Uh, Final couple of questions here. Uh, since you've been in Austin, what's the weirdest thing you've seen since we like to keep Austin weird? The weirdest thing I've seen. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe people living in tents as I drive into work. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good weird though, is it? That's a bad weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's up there, though. It's weird. It's, every time I see it, I'm like, man, it's weird, but it's not a good weird. I, I need to think about what else What else I've seen that's weird. That, that's up there. Have you been to any of, like, the festival, the Eeyores and stuff like that, where you see kind of... The Eeyores? I haven't been to that festival. No, I haven't. Usually when I go to festivals, I'm working the festival. Like, oh, you know, that's like true. Like, ACL, you know, we're working the festival. Yeah. 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 
Okay, so final question we got here. Um, if you were giving advice to somebody moving to Austin other than don't, what would that advice be? They're definitely moving or they're considering moving. Okay, they're considering moving. I would say do it. You know, I would say my advice would be like, you know, Austin is, uh, I really believe it's truly a unique city um, in terms of uh, the people that inhabit it, uh, the culture I think is very unique. Um, I just feel like generally people are pretty nice in Austin. And I think that's uh, a really unique thing uh, for a city. I, I can't say that the same thing about every city I've, I've, I've lived in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I encourage people to move to Austin. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a unique, unique city in a really positive way. Excellent. Well, Eric, I'm, I really want to thank you for your time. We've, uh, this has been a lot of fun. And, um, absolutely. I, uh, I love the food tortilla. I got to tell you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate talking to you guys about kind of everything that's going on right now. Yeah. We would like to, uh, to get back with you a little later after the pandemic lets up and yeah. hear how you, uh, maintained and reemerged. If you'd be up for that. I'm absolutely up for that. Hopefully that's sooner than later. Yeah. Absolutely. So So one thing I want to do before we wrap it up here, is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, I mean, I'd love, I'd love for, you know, your audience to come check us out. You know, we have a, you know, just to reiterate, we have a location downtown called Bar Peace, 1315 West 6th street in Clarksville. Um, that is, that's open Tuesday through Sunday night for dinner. Um, and then we have our other original location on Burner road, Peace Tortilla. Um, we do curbside, we do, we do dine in, we have our fresco dining now. And, uh, if neither of those work and, and you want to just cook at home, then check out our cookbook, which is available on Amazon. It's called the Peace Tortilla, my modern hmm. Asian comfort food from Tokyo to Texas. What about websites? What's your website? www.thepeachedtortilla.com and www.barpeached.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Eric, thanks again. It was a pleasure having you on and, um, for Joel and myself, we'll see you next time on the trail to Austin. Bye-bye.